at the close of 1 Samuel chapter 8, Samuel, told by the Lord to grant the people's request for a king, sends everyone home to their own city. So as we come to our text from 1 Samuel 9 and 10, we're left asking, where is the king? Who is the king? What is next? And we get this remarkably strange story in 1 Samuel 9 and 10. I remember reading these chapters a while back when I was preparing for this sermon. I would read them and I would say to Cheryl, I I don't know, I don't see a sermon here. (laughs) I'd read them again and say, I'm not sure. I don't know, I'm not sure what to do. At one point she said, why don't you just skip those chapters? And I said, well, I'm preaching a series on 1 Samuel. It's tough to skip the chapters when Saul becomes the king. You got to talk about these things. So we do. You know, the story is best summarized by John Milton, who spoke of Saul as he who, seeking asses, found a kingdom. Right? And thus, we're going to look at the text under two headings. Donkey sought, chapter 9. And a kingdom found, chapter 10. Donkey sought and a kingdom found. So first then, donkey sought. After all this high drama of chapter 8, right, the cry for a king so they can be like all the nations, then Saul's anti-monarchy diatribe against them. I'm not Samuel's diatribe against them. Now we're back to the life of an ordinary family a Benjamite of some standing whose name was Kish, who had a son named Saul. And we're told that he's handsome. He's a handsome young man, and he's tall, a head taller than everyone else. He's good in appearance. He's from a a family of standing. For him, expectations would be high. His appearance, by the way, is going to become very important later in the story, where we will be reminded that appearances can be deceiving. For now, though, for now, this is just the sort of king the nations would choose. And for just the same sorts of reasons. He's tall. He's good looking. Comes from good stock. He plays well on social media. All the pretty people like him. And so here we are. It's an ordinary day on the ranch with what seems like a pretty normal crisis. The donkeys belonging to Saul's father, Kish, were lost. It's an irritant. So the father asked Saul and one of the servants to go looking for them. Strange start to the story of a king coming into his kingdom. Just minutia. Just mundane business down on the farm. So Saul and the servant go looking. And it's hard not to shake the sense that there's a certain incompetence hovering around Saul from the beginning of his appearance. We're told as they pass from region to region, three times we're told they did not find them. They were not there. 
they did not find them. And we learn later in the text that they were looking for these donkeys for three days. So it turns out that maybe, unlike David, this guy's not such a good shepherd. But these are just faint hints at this point. They finally reach this place, this district called the District of Zuph, Z-U-P-H, which just so happens to be where Samuel's home is. Samuel's judging the nation on a circuit, but this is his home. Saul gives up there. He tells his servant, let's go back or my father's going to stop worrying about the donkeys and start worrying about us. It's a dutiful enough sentiment. But the servant, remember Saul's got a servant with him. The servant, unlike Saul, seems to at least have heard of Samuel's national prophetic ministry. Remember, by this time, Samuel is a prophet to the whole nation. The servant says, there's a man of God in this town. Saul doesn't seem to even know this. But his servant knows where Samuel lives. And the servant says, everything this guy says comes true. Let's go and find him. And maybe he can tell us which way to take. They're both still thinking about how to find the donkeys. You're six verses into 1 Samuel chapter 9, all about the lost donkeys. And so Saul thinks, all right, what can we give him as a gift? Our food is gone. We have nothing. The servant says, well, I've got a little silver. We can give it to him. And then he'll tell us which way to take. It's as if even the narrator has had enough of this because the narrator himself interjects in verse 9. The narrator says, Formerly, if someone went to inquire of God, they would say, Come, let us go to the seer, because the prophet of today used to be called a seer. At least the narrator understands that they should be seeking to inquire of God. They should be searching for the word of God. But for the time being, they're fixated on the donkeys. They go up into the town, and as they enter it, there's Samuel entering the town, coming back home probably from judging. So, the story is so plain to this point, so natural and ordinary. We want something spiritual to happen in the story. I mean, doesn't this seem like one of those days or strings of days where God is distant, where he doesn't appear to be in the midst of the events? At least not in any way we can figure out. And what is the point of chasing these donkeys? How can God be in that? Well, the point is, and we saw much of this in the book of Esther, The point is this remarkable, never sleeping, always active, but invisible providence of God in the mundane stuff. God preserves and works in and with and by his power and governs all his creatures and all their actions. Think of the chain of events in these boring, irritating couple of days which bring Saul to this little town or this little region of Zuf, the wandering off of the pack of donkeys, 
The father, who could have chosen anyone, chooses Saul to go get them. And then he tells Saul to bring a servant, and Saul happens to pick this servant. And then Saul's inability to find them as he zigs and zags around the countryside. Then Saul getting tired and giving up right in the land of Zoph where Samuel happens to live. Then the servant, the one he happened to pick out of all the servants on the ranch, the arbitrarily taken servant, remembers there's a prophet in this exact town. And then the servant just happens to have a little silver in his pocket. And both of them happen to be going up into the town right when Samuel's coming home. And I left a bunch of stuff out in the interest of time. This is the providence of God, which in the words of one scholar, magnifies the minutia of our lives. Isn't that a beautiful saying? Magnifies the minutia. Even when we are clueless, even when we are not let in on the secret, which is, beloved, most of the time, almost all the time, But someone in this story has been let in on the secret. Providence, God's ordering of things, without the word of God, can seem blind or indifferent. Certainly it's mysterious and often dark to us. But in this text, the living word of God has already intervened. You can see it in verse 15. It says, the prior day... The Lord had revealed. Notice that. The Lord had revealed. Providence is not revelation. You know, the configuration of people and things and events in your life is not revelation. Even though we insist on continually trying to interpret it. You can go crazy trying to figure out the secret things God is doing through events. Now, you might be able to look back and see a faint outline. But in the contemporary moment and trying to figure out the near or far future, interpreting providence is a fool's game. Providence is not revelation. Revelation tells you what's going on and what we are to do. right? And revelation breaks into this story. God speaks a word to Samuel. That's why one of the things we try to remind ourselves of around here is don't rack your brain trying to interpret events. Repair, turn, turn back to Holy Scripture. It is the revelation, the very voice of God. So the prior day, by his word, the Lord has revealed that he is sending a man of Benjamin who's to be anointed as the ruler. For now, Saul's ascension to the kingship is a behind-the-scenes event. But Samuel is let in on it. He's to anoint Saul as the ruler over Israel. And there's something beautiful here in verse 16. The provision of a ruler who will save my people because, the Lord says, I have looked upon my people and their cry of distress has come to me. Exodus language. This is a lovely window into the divine compassion. God has already said that their desire for a king is sinful. 
that it is a rejection of the Lord himself as king, that it is even a form of idolatry. And yet he hears their cry. He sympathizes with the distress, even if it's disordered distress. Even if he doesn't agree with the motives of the distress. And he provides a deliverer in a situation where one should never have been requested. Right? This would have never happened if you or I were God. Right? We would have said, no king, a king is a rejection of me, get over it. This is a compassionate and beneficent father. We would have said, look, you're in this distress because it's your own fault. It's your own choices, and I'm not letting you out of this distress with this act of idolatry where you want a king. That, of course, is not what happens in the narrative. It's one of the really surprising things about the early chapters of 1 Samuel. We're so used to these chapters that the shock may not register with us. So Samuel He then sees Saul approaching, and the Lord who chose Saul and who sent Saul now discloses Saul. Samuel gets another word. This is the man I told you about. He will govern my people. So now here's what happens. Right now that the word has intervened, now that God has spoken, this string of ordinary and unruly events, the lost donkeys and the search and all of that, it looks different now. Because the word has intervened and the secret's been disclosed to Samuel. They meet, finally, Samuel and Saul. They have a little dialogue where Samuel sort of cryptically tells him he's, the donkeys are okay, stop worrying about the donkeys. And sort of alludes to the fact that the desire of the nation will be turned to his house. But he doesn't really shed a lot of light on matters. It's less than perfectly clear. And then they go and sit down and share a meal. Where Saul, who's surely confused by now, is the honored guest. And as they part the next day, Samuel says, send the servant up up ahead. I don't want him to hear what I'm going to tell you. I'm going to send you a message from God. I'm going to let you in on the secret. So that brings me to the second point, which is a kingdom found. So at the beginning of chapter 10, Samuel actually anoints Saul. It's a private ceremony. Saul is now king. He has stumbled into or found a kingdom. I mean, this is an odd couple of days. This is, it's almost comedic that Saul is king and he's not quite even sure what it means. It's like you take your car to the garage and you're sitting there waiting while the mechanic works on it and some strange guy comes in and takes you into the other room and tells you that you've just become the president of the United States. Right? That's what's happened to Saul in this story. You're the next king of Britain. So, so Samuel says... Has not the Lord anointed you ruler over his inheritance? This is a very important line in the story, believe it or not. God's people are God's inheritance, his possession. And in giving them a king and still calling them his inheritance, he is saying, I will not let you become a nation like all the other nations. You will remain my inheritance. 
And then in addition to the word, you get an anointing, a sign of the spirit, which then becomes the dominant theme in the narrative. Samuel sends Saul away. And as if the story doesn't have enough twists, he says, by the way, as you're going home, I'm going to give you three signs of divine confirmation. I'm only going to talk about the third one because it's the one that's the most prominent in the story. Saul gets back to Gibeah, which is his home, and he meets this procession of prophets playing musical instruments and prophesying. Apparently, there were schools of prophets in Israel. Right? And Samuel told them, the Spirit of the Lord is going to come upon you and you will prophesy. You'll be changed into another man. The point is really not that Saul's born again or something like that, or even that he becomes a prophet. The point is that the Spirit is needed for him to be king, to furnish him to do the office. To be an anointed one is to be filled with the Spirit for service. So notice what's happened in the story now. The word of God through Samuel and the gift of the Spirit, according to Samuel's word, that is what governs the story. That is what governs the nation and the monarchy. Word and spirit, spirit and word, always united together, never separated. It's a feature. It's a feature of our tradition to emphasize this. The spirit speaks through the word. The word works by the power of the spirit. And it's beautifully illustrated here. By the end of the story, trying to sort out providence gives way to the word and the spirit. So Saul ends up home. His uncle says, where have you been? And he underreports. He says, looking for the donkeys, that we couldn't find them. We went to Samuel. He told us they were found. Anything else? Did he tell you anything else? And Saul says, no. No. He, I mean, you don't want to go home and tell your family that, right, you, just, that you, you, you left a Jewish boy on the ranch and you, you're, you came back, and now you're hanging out with all those crazy charismatics, right? prophesying, right? and now you're the king of the nation at the same time. Oh yeah, the spirit rushed upon me, and I started prophesying, and by the way, I'm anointed as the king of Israel. Right? You end up in a doctor's office, right? So I'm going to, that's the story. I want to close with two points. I'm going to call them Providence and Palm Sunday. First one is Providence. So we've seen the the hand of Providence in the ordinary things of Saul's days. We know he becomes a king. We know he fails. We know David eventually becomes a king. But we might be tempted to think, these are big, important figures in the history of Israel. What about my ordinary, boring nondescript days. What about my irksome days? Well, the same loving, wise providence is tending to you. Jesus assures us of this. Every hair on your head, every detail of your life, all your actions, as it tends to all the falling sparrows. Proverbs 16, 9, the heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. Now, this is greatly comforting to know. 
But it doesn't make transparent. It doesn't make clear what exactly is happening to us and why. Listen to Proverbs 20, 24. This is perhaps a neglected but a critically important text on, on God's providence. Proverbs 20, 24 says, A man's steps are from the Lord. How then can man understand his way? See, it's precisely because the Lord orders our steps that we cannot figure out what is going on. And yet most of us live in a different mode. We're like, well, the Lord's ordering our step, my steps. So this happened, and then that happened, and this happened, and that happened. So the Lord must be saying something like this. Proverbs 20, 24 says, it's the Lord who orders your steps. Therefore, you're not going to be able to figure it out. Therefore, it's going to be thick and opaque and mysterious. How then can, you, can a man understand his way if it's the sovereign, infinite, triune God who's ordering his steps? And yet Christians are obsessed with this. We cannot figure out what's going on. You know why? Because we're not let in on the secret. Because providence is not revelation. Here, we are different than Samuel. We haven't been given a special revelation to interpret the meaning of the lost donkeys in our lives. So what do you do? Right? What do you do when you're not let in on the secret? It's one thing to rest in God's providence. It's another thing to constantly try to decode it. The two things are not the same. What do you do? Because you're not let in and I'm not let in on the secret of why all these donkeys have gone missing in life. Well, here's the thing. First, you keep looking for the lost donkeys. Meaning, you do the stuff put before you, and you do it without seeking some unknowable significance in it. The vast majority of life is unknowable, incomprehensible, unfathomable to us. We are unfathomable to ourselves. So, of course, you're not going to figure out the significance. Just go get the donkeys. You remain faithful. You do the boring stuff. You go get those donkeys, you bring them home. Clean your room. The second thing you do is you repair to the Word and the Spirit. We do not try to divine, and by that word I mean unravel. We do not try to divine providence. We seek to divide the Word of God rightly. We should be more passionate about the details of the text of Holy Scripture than we are about the exact configuration of people, places, and things in our life at this current moment. We're always trying to exegete them. Well, this and this and this and this and that and that and that and that. Like, like bring that same level of rigor to the text of the New Testament. That same level of attention to detail. We don't try to divine providence. We are, our calling is to divide the word of God right. And there in Scripture, guess what? You're also not let in on the details of your life. If you are, then you need to read First Chronicles or something. Or Leviticus. You're not let in. But you know what you are let in on? You're let in on the big secret of Jesus' life. And that's enough. 
That's enough. You're let in on the big picture of what God is doing, and then you're told, you know what? You see this big picture of what God is doing in Christ? You're baptized into that big picture. You do know the important thing about what God's doing in your life. We do know this. He is seeking conformity with the image of the glorious Christ. He is seeking to renew our minds and to transform us from glory to glory by the word and the spirit. This is why the events and the people in your life are configured the way they are. That's it. God has configured these people, these events, in this time, in my life, because he wants to lay hold of my soul and transform me and enlarge me and break and mold and refashion me into the image of his son. At that point, of course, now when you lose this, it doesn't matter if you figured out why the donkeys wandered away. So that's providence. The second point is Palm Sunday. On Palm Sunday, in Jesus Christ, a donkey is found. That donkey belonged to Jesus and his father. It's his father's donkey. In a sense, it wandered off and Jesus finds it. He takes some servants of his and tracks the donkey down. Not only is a donkey found on Palm Sunday, a kingdom secretly still is assumed. Jesus, the scripture tells us, is the secret, the revealed mystery of God's eternal purpose. He came in a fashion similar to what we see in this text. He spends 30 years chasing donkeys in his father's carpenter shop. He comes slowly and strangely and secretly into his kingdom. And during his earthly ministry, you know what he does? He underreports. He refuses to let people know that he's the Messiah. He holds the secret back. So it is the outline. It is the mysterious shadow of Jesus himself that we see in this strange, mysterious text in 1 Samuel 9 and 10. He is the summit of God's strange providence. These Old Testament stories move, right? They're embedded in other stories. It's a narrative. It has direction. It has an end. It's one narrative. It ends in Jesus. He's the word of God. The word which came to Samuel, he is that word. And he speaks the word of God that Samuel spoke. He is the revelation of the mystery of God's providence. What is God doing? In the world, we look to Jesus and especially to his broken death on the cross and resurrection. And we say, that is what God is doing in the world. That one is the anointed one, the Christ who was, who, upon whom the spirit rushed. John says in his gospel, Jesus received the spirit beyond measure. What we see with Saul is just a type, a picture of that. This is the one God sent because he heard our cries, even though our cries are often distorted and disordered and idolatrous. And thus it is to this Jesus that we look. This Jesus disclosed in the witness of the prophets and the apostles in the text of Scripture. We look to him 
there in our perplexity and in our doubt and in our weakness and in our darkness and in our failure and in our confusion and, and in our ordinary boredom of a bunch of donkey chasing on a Tuesday morning. Glory to Christ. He is the summit of God's providence. The word made flesh, anointed with the spirit for us and for our salvation. Amen.